It's time to think differently about healthcare, but how do we keep up? The days of yesterday's medicine are long gone, and we're left trying to figure out where to go from here. With all the talk about politics and technology, it can be easy to forget that healthcare is still all about humans. And many of those humans have unbelievable stories to tell. Here, we leave the policy debates to the other guys and focus instead on the people and ideas that are changing the way we address our health. It's time to navigate the new landscape of healthcare together and hear some amazing stories along the way. Ready for a breath of fresh air? It's time for your Paradigm Shift. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift of Healthcare, and thank you for listening. I'm Michael Roberts here today with my co-hosts, Scott Zeitzer and Jared Johnson. On today's episode, we're speaking with attorney Doug Aldean. Welcome, Doug, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, absolutely, Michael. Great to be here. Thank you for asking me to show up and discuss this with you guys. Absolutely. We uh, we look forward to having these chances to interact with people, you know, through all the midst of this. You know, we actually get to see each other and actually talk with people uh, through all this all this. And that kind of leads us right into our first topic here. In the midst of COVID-19, you've spoken recently about avoiding surprise billing and price gouging through the midst of all this. Who's behind this? Who's trying to start price gouging and, and how is it affecting both providers and patients? You know, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I think that the real issue we have in this country, because I think it really sets the con- or sets the stage, which is we have a hospital billing and collecting issue. It's not necessarily balanced billing, it's the processes they have in place. I mean, because most hospital systems, frankly, are set up for auto adjudication, Blue Cross Blue Shield, and it's just an automated thing. And the minute you introduce self-funded plans with different coverage, you know, requirements, it doesn't flow well with their systems. And so you just end up having bills that should have been paid that weren't, shouldn't have been billed, but were. It's a discombobulated mess. So I, I think there's a, there's a couple of things behind it. I think one, you know, you're a self-funded plan. You have obligations to meet the terms and conditions of your plan document. Okay. So pay for the services that are eligible to be paid for. You know, you've got, there's supposed to be no cost sharing under COVID. So if you're treated or, you know, diagnosed, there's supposed to be no cost sharing. And it just, it's the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. So, you know, on one hand, you've got hospitals billing for services on the other hand, you've got self-funded plans that are obligated to pay for certain services. And it's just the two entities don't really talk well to each other. I think there's like definitely like a, an issue of there's just a lot of miscommunication. But is there something where, you know, does it get <laughs> I don't want to be a conspiracy or anything like that. You know, is it more nefarious than that? Is it because you think, I think of price gouging? Yeah, like it's, it's oh, like an, an absolutely that's happening there. Well, you think about the environment in which these hospitals are operating. The biggest single driver of their profit, of profitability are elective surgeries. That hasn't been happening for quite some time. So your revenues are down. Significant number of hospital systems have access to CARES Act funds. They need money. Cash is king. And so if you don't have cost sharing and you can bill pretty much whatever you want to bill, I hate to say it's you're like an ATM machine, but you know, you've got the ability to generate a lot of revenue really quick by sending out bills. Absolutely. So I, I do think, that, I think there is a, there's definitely a profit motive. Does it cross the nefarious, you know, evil empire type line? Yeah, I think in some instances you could say yes. So I know that it's, you know, this is obviously hitting patients hard because they've got to deal with the outcome of that in terms of like, hey, I'm now stuck with this bill. How is it affecting the providers themselves? Well, I, I think it affects the providers in that you're already operating under a, you know, very stressful environment. I think there's, you know, the 
you start looking at the pay cuts that a lot of these, because a lot of the, the physicians are employed by these hospitals, okay? Maybe even a private equity company. And whether it's pay cuts, all of those different things are having a snowball effect in terms of morale. Let's just build a living blank out of this until we can get X amount of dollars. And so we're heading down that slope and the snowball is slowly but surely gathering steam. Yeah, you know, I've always thought that um, with COVID, a lot of things are exposed that normally kind of just don't come to fruition. The pricing for lots of different healthcare costs become much more important during COVID because like you said, there's not elective surgeries going on. How the heck do we survive? Right. The individual practices that used to worry more about how to manage how busy they were are now just trying to figure out how to get workflow through their waiting room so that they don't hurt somebody and so on. And so all of these costs come out. I know that you're an advisor, I think, to RIP uh, Medical Debt. We had Craig, uh, Craig Antico, on our program uh, a few weeks back. From your perspective, is it the responsibility of the provider, the hospital, the insurance company, all three, about keeping costs down for patients or not? Like, no, that, that's not their deal. I think you can answer that question on a multiple of fronts. I, I personally think with the Hippocratic Oath of Physicians, i.e. do no harm, I think that also includes do no financial harm. From my per, you know, that's my personal view. I, I would think other people would agree with that. So I do think from the, the, the entity or person providing those services, you know, there, obviously there's nothing wrong with making a profit. There's nothing wrong with providing, you know, value for your services or assigning value for your services. So you've got that on one hand. Insurance companies, I mean, you know, if it's a Blue Cross Blue Shield or a publicly traded company, I mean, your duty is to your shareholders. And when you start looking at the underlying foundation of the ACA, i.e. the MLR, where there's actually perverse market incentives to increase the piece of the pie. Because if you think about it, if you have to pay out 80% of every dollar you collect in terms of claims, so there's a 20% what I call you keep provision under the ACA, okay? You'd rather, so if you're an insurance company, you'd rather have 20% of 100 billion Okay, rather than 20% of 1 billion. So, you know, the very foundation of the ACA has cre created perverse market incentives for hospitals and insurance companies to work together. So in other words, if you're billing 15,000 for a CAT scan, provider doesn't care, he's getting paid more. The insurance company doesn't care because they're collecting premiums based upon that 15,000 number. And at the end of the day, the bonuses, salaries and everything else are gonna be based upon that number rather than the 1200, which might be more appropriate. So the 20% MLR has created, honestly, this entire mess. Because when you start looking at the stocks, the publicly traded stocks since 2010, all of them have been, I mean, record busters. United, Aetna, Cigna. I guess to answer your question, if you're looking at, you know, do you want to blame somebody? I mean, there's more blame to be assigned, I think, to the insurance carriers because they've let this happen over all these years, but the providers have been willing participants. Yeah, we spoke to Carl Schusler and, and he really put it very, he's a very funny man and he basically said like, hey, don't blame the insurance companies. They're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. The system was designed by them and they uh, do a good job of making excellent money, which you know kind of takes me to this follow-up question. It's like, all right, well then, then how do payment models need to change? 
in order to make things better. Is there a way to lower the costs under a capitalist medical, you know, payment setup? Like, can we do this? Ultimately, the payment model, I personally think, is free market-based in cash. I mean, why do you even, you know, insurance, think about this. If you used your auto insurance to buy gas, I mean, think about the price you would pay as a premium for your auto insurance. And because insurance is specifically designed for catastrophic type events. And I think that when you start looking at legislation and, and different vehicles are out there, for example, there's what's called an independent coverage HRA. And that allows an employer in today's marketplace to make a choice. I can give a defined benefit to my employees and they can go on the exchanges or shop for whatever they want to, however they want to use the money, or you can use it to, for employer-based coverage. But the point being is at least you have an option. And I think the market is moving that way. So to answer your question, I personally think that, you know, insurance carriers, if you start looking down the road, it's unsustainable. It can't, it can't be afforded. We've got to go back to catastrophic type insurance and people paying cash, you know, for regular visits and, and that type of stuff. Hmm. It's interesting. It's a different modality uh, completely. The whole thing behind this is, uh, to your point, it's like everybody's trying to do the right thing, but they also can make a heck of a lot of money. Yeah. The running joke is we're $689 million away from fixing healthcare. Well, what is that? That's the amount spent lobbying Congress each year between pharma, the hospitals, and the doctors. And they're not going to Chili's for 20 for 20 or two for 20 bucks, you know? Yep, for sure. You know, what's interesting is it's all perspective, right? I mean, it's easy to pass the buck if you're the provider. Uh, when the patient comes to you, you're, you're the one. It's usually the, uh, somebody at the front desk or the most recent frontline person that they've actually interacted with at the office who gets the, the earful about how expensive this bill is. And that's not usually who causes the bill. And so I think it's easy for the provider or the staff to say, don't look at me. The bill is the bill. You know, here's what we can do to help. But, you know, this isn't our thing. At the very least, it's not only our thing. And as we see different payment models from providers, you know, from DPC models to concierge style models, I think that's where we start to see more consumers kind of waking up and mm -hmm. seeing, oh, there are other ways to do this. I don't have to be surprised four months from now at this $20,000 bill that's in the mail now. And there are other options. And a lot of those options really do have to do with being self-funded. You were just talking about self-funded care a, a moment ago. Can you give us the state of the state? What is going on with, with self-funded care? What are, what are typical options that are out there for, for patients and consumers? I mean, what's the benefit and, and uh, kind of how does, maybe kind of the one-on-one -on -one version, like how does self-funded care even work? A lot of what I do is direct contracting. I do a ton of direct contracting across the country. So you're just taking a self-funded plan and contracting directly with the health system. And, you know, that's going to reduce... Think about the disintermediation that's happening there. You don't have a PPO network, don't need it, but you're, you're, you're reducing that spend 30, 40% simply because you're cutting out all the excess middlemen. I mean, so you're contracting directly with the facility. So a plan, you know, you have a great deal with Ascension in Milwaukee covering, you know, not only professional services, but all the inpatient, outpatient, all the different stuff. In exchange, you know, they get paid 15 days within 15 days, as long as it's a clean claim. You know, you've got the benefit of some steerage and it works out pretty well. I mean, I, I think the, the, the market is moving in that direction. 
And is there kind of like a sweet spot of size in terms of a health system? I mean, are there, is there benefit for a, for a smaller practice an independent practice to be able to take advantage of that kind of thing? Is, is it meant for larger systems? I think size is irrelevant. I think it doesn't matter whether it's, it's a small DPC practice or, you know, whether the system is massive, like ascension. I mean, again, to me, money is money. I don't care if it's, you know, if you're making a hundred thousand dollars or a hundred million dollars based on the group. I just don't think size matters. I think it really just comes down to, you know, what's a fair level of reimbursement. And if you let it think about this, I mean, I'll give you a 99% discount every single time. If you let me set the price, because think about it. I mean, you're letting me set the price. I set it artificially high and I'm giving you a 99% discount. I'm still gouging you. And that ultimately is why the discount model is not going to be around much longer. Um, and you got to build that pricing from the bottom up. And there is information available publicly, what the hospitals collect, what their non-contracted rates are, what their contracted rates are. The amount of the hospitals are increasing their charges relative to their costs, which are going through the roof. And you got to build that pricing from the bottom up. I mean, there's just no getting around it. So who are you getting calls from the most? I mean, what types of organizations are, are reaching out and, and saying, uh, okay, finally, we're going to take a look at self-funded plans a little bit more. Well, you know, I work primarily with payers, so self-funded plans. So the calls that I get are, you know, we've got, you know, a particular patient. You take like, for example, you'll have 342 claims with Ascension that are, quote, out of network. And we want to resolve them on a global basis at a percentage of Medicare. And then hopefully tie that into a direct contract on a go forward basis. And that, you know, been successful with that probably 25 to 30% of the time. Awesome. Awesome. So then I guess it kind of opens the, the bigger question of like, what are the opportunities? What are the biggest opportunities for the healthcare system to change? You know, if we kind of look at there, it sounds like there's growth in self-funded plans. That's mm-hmm. what you're seeing. That's what you're experiencing. There's growth there. There's momentum. If that keeps up, what's the big opportunity here? Like what, what do we, I guess a better way to phrase this is what do we hope will happen? What's the biggest benefit for everybody? What's the best case in terms of how payment reform keeps happening and how we, we continue to see growth in this area? What's, what's the best case that happens? I personally think from my, you know, my humble view is that one of the most important things that can happen moving forward is for not-for-profit health systems to return to their mission-based endeavors. Because when you start looking at the market conduct with a number of these not-for-profit facilities, they're anything but charitable. And you start going under the hood a little bit further and you start looking at, for example, what was it was, I think Providence out West, $6 billion in investment income, or at least investment assets, and in terms of what they're generating from that. I mean, they're like a mini hedge fund. And then you start looking at their billing and collection practices and they're suing Michael and Jared and Scott and Doug for 84 bucks. And I think that we've got, we we really need to have a referee that really monitors. I mean, are you really meeting your charitable endeavors? However that's defined, how can you have a health system that's your largest employer, but doesn't pay any income and or real estate taxes? We, we talked a little bit about how you work with uh, RIP Medical Debt in the past. Is there anything that you can kind of share just on, on how you've been able to advise them? We were all so enamored with the mission of that group and just how they've been able to bring relief to so many different types of people. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear more about, you know, the work that you've done with them. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, they go out and buy medical debt on the secondary market. So think about this, Hospital X 
sells off its bad debt to collection agency A. Mm-hmm. And, you know, collection agency A buys it for, I don't know, let's just say if it's 10000 maybe they spend, I don't know, four cents for it or something. I mean, a ridiculous number. But then, you know, they turn around and want to take that four cents and collect the $10,000. So they're, you know, harassing Jared every hour for the 10000 You're like, wait a minute, that was like four years ago. You know, mm-hmm. but the statute of limitations is five years in, in your particular state. You know, again, if they make a dollar, they're profitable. If they make 50, I mean, wow, over X yeah. amount of counts. But, and, but the ROI, when you start looking at that, when you start looking at their models, and Craig, and, and I don't know if you guys talked about Craig and, and Jerry, and were in that market for decades. Yes, sure. they were. And, you, you know, there's models and all the different things. But, you know, you just look at it and say, you know what? Your chances of recovering, <laughs> even your initial investment, are like 0.02%. So how about we pay you a factor of X, something nominal, but it gets them out of their initial investment and a little bit of money. And, you know, there's people behind it, whether it's churches, local civic groups, that will say, you know, well, we got $10,000, go buy a million dollars worth of debt, and we're going to spread the love around. And it, it's literally a great model. And it is even, you know, you think about $100, $100 can buy $10,000 worth of medical yeah. debt. And if you're a family in, you know, central Illinois, you want to go to Disney or pay your medical bill. I mean, you right. just literally freedom up to go to Disney. I mean, how awesome is that? Right. We're totally, yeah. totally. Yeah. So it's interesting because like, I think about the RIP medical debt group and I think about, you know, some of what you're talking about and, you know, you kind of take like the average person, what can the average person yeah. do to make an impact on what's happening? And so, you know, RIP medical debt, here's a, a charitable organization where you can literally change somebody else's quality of life literally by, yeah. by eliminating all that kind of debt. I'm curious as to how that relates to these options of self-funded care. What can the average person do? You know, my family, we just had a, a very healthy baby, which was wonderful, but yeah. I've got an older daughter that has a, a chronic condition that we see a doctor on a regular basis. So what can a family like mine do to say like, hey, I'm not really comfortable with how insurance is playing out right now for my family. What are my options? What can I do to try to change this dynamic? Other than maybe, you know, approaching the hospital, depending on what type of insurance you have. What I don't know if you've got like sure. a health savings account or whatever it be, but ultimately, because you, you're, it's your daughter, you're, you're going to this facility a lot. I mean, you've got to come up with something that is affordable. And, you know, absent, you know, discussing it with the facility yourself, looking at the bills, with a fine tooth comb. I mean, it's, it's a difficult role. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I mean, sure. I, I would think that just approaching the hospital, here's where I need help, you know, mm-hmm. happy to pay. This is what I've got, but then, you know, come up with some type of financial plan, if you will, that, that's going to make it affordable. I mean, so then kind of taking it out an easy the road. Yeah, no, my boss is on the phone, so I will say this, <laughs> say this well. Um, you know, like we, we have a good health insurance plan. And yeah. it's something where we're very blessed to, to have that opportunity. But I, I'm thinking in terms of like who has the power to make these kinds of changes, you know, so maybe the average person doesn't, then going up the ladder is it the employers then that need to be demanding these kinds of self-funded plans? Is it the health systems? Like who can make a difference in that? Well, you know, so here, here's where I think there's a big picture. Then there's, you know, you got to get in the weeds. 
So, for example, there, there's the balance billing issue, which has been floating around Congress for you know well over a couple of years. And nobody's able to get it across the finish line, right, wrong, and different, because there's so much resistance to it. Well, why is there so much resistance? Well, think about it. If you can't balance bill, okay, what recourse do you have? You don't. Because all of a sudden, the $100,000 bill that really should be, let's say, 10000 You've lost all leverage. You can't balance bill. You can't sue them. You're never going to collect it. And so it automatically flips the table because now there's a market for those services because you can't, you know, just bill somebody $100,000 because you're, quote, out of network. You know, you're looking at, well, what's the real price? And it forces the market to really start to, to work. Quality, price, and so there, there's a systemic thing, which I think one is balanced billing, okay? And then the other things are people actually being in control of those dollars because healthcare typically has always been it's OPM or other people's money. But when it's your money, if there's anything I've learned in 53 years of life is everybody understands the language of money. I don't care if you're the taxi cab driver in New York or you're you know, the Fed chairman, everybody understands the language of money. And when you control those dollars, like you shop for TVs, you can look for doctors. There are great doctors, have a great business, and there's other doctors. I had a surgeon friend of mine who told me that 25% of surgeons shouldn't be doing surgery. And I was just like, well, how would you know? It's like, you wouldn't. You just wouldn't, you know? So Yeah, that, that same case may be said across the board from, you know, 25% of the people shouldn't be riding, driving a cab. And I agree yeah. with that statement. I mean, there are good people who are good at their jobs or people who aren't good at their jobs. And the, the idea of the balanced billing will help bring that out uh, right now. Yes, it will. Even with our, we do have very good insurance. I got the best that I could quote buy, you know, in my area. Yeah. And ultimately though, if goodness forbid, you need to be out of network, you better have a good reason because you're about to pay a heck of a lot of money for that. And yeah. why would that be? You know, that kind of thing. So I do think that would be a big component of getting this back together again. I think we're hitting our, our end point, guys, in terms of time, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Am I correct about that? Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Doug, thank you so much for, for coming on the show. I, I feel like every well, absolutely. episode, thank you. we just yeah. get a chance to learn and learn and learn and, and hear how other people are attacking the problems and, and coming at this. So thank you so much. Thanks again for tuning in to the Paradigm Shift of Healthcare. This program is brought to you by P3 Inbound, marketing for ortho, spine, and neural practices. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.